proportional representation referendum, site C to miss a key deadline, money laundering, well, there's no shortage of topics to discuss on the show today. Joining me to do just that, Global BC's Keith Baldry, and from the Vancouver Sun, Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw. For Kamloops Computer Centre, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in and happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners. Glad to be joined by Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and welcome back to Rob Shaw. Gentlemen, good morning. Good morning, Jane. I have to say I'm uh, I'm very happy to spend the last day before Thanksgiving weekend with you turkeys. <laughs> very funny. <laughs> Uh, Guys, why don't we start with proportional representation. Uh, David Eby setting the table for that referendum to come with some enabling legislation. Uh, But the door is very much open to something much different than what was promised on the campaign trail. Vaughn, why don't we start with you? Well, Eby has stacked the deck to make sure this passes. That's basically it. And uh, I think the decision... uh, Folks uh, through all those uh, lower population ridings in the interior should recognize that the deciding vote on this is probably going to be cast in the big cities. The uh, the New Democrats are going for 50% plus one. There's no requirement that this pass in uh, all the ridings that the NDP doesn't represent. The Greens are behind it. They've abandoned what they promised before the election, which was, John Horgan said, it'll be a simple yes-no question, just one question on one system. They're bringing in multiple questions. They're opening the door to that. They're going to have a multiple, a numbered ballot, which means that uh, probably first past the post uh, won't get a lot of second choices and may lose. So uh, there's a lot wrong with this bill as I see it, but there's not much question in my mind where the New Democrats and the Greens are headed. They are determined to bring this system into B.C. Been turned down in the past, but people who believe in proportional representation, Shane, their system is to make you keep voting for it until they get what they want. Yeah, well, I'm I'm a little unclear on this, and Keith, you asked David Eby this, and I, I, his answer, quite frankly, was a little foggy, but uh, under the multiple choice or ranked ballot, are we absolutely crystal clear there will be a no or even having a status quo option or no? No. In uh, the background attachment we got to this bill, which is basically uh, the government through regulations can basically do anything they want with this. So the cabinet can, can frame the, the ballot question any way they want. It's not entirely clear whether first past the post will even be on the ballot as an option. Um, Vaughn's point is uh, is key that this is a preferential, potentially a preferential uh, voting system where people can rank their choices. So uh, hypothetically, if there are, are a couple of uh, models for p- uh, proportional representation on the ballot, say mixed member and STV and uh, first past the post, presumably anybody voting for, for proportional representation is not going to make their second choice first past the post, which mm. is the current system. They'll make their second choice the other proportional representation uh, model. So this is greatly, uh, potentially, until we see the ballot, we don't know, but potentially stacked big time against the current system and designed to ensure that proportional representation actually is voted on uh, by 50% plus one, but it probably won't be 50% plus one on the first count. It will likely be less than that, and only will achieve that 50% plus one barrier after the second and even third votes are tabulated. So it's uh, it's a very questionable system. We've never, ever... Uh, voted this way in in since 1952 uh, in terms of a, a, a preferential ballot or a, or, a, or a single transferable vote type system. So this is a unique. It's a landmark bill. 
It's a ground-changing uh, legislation, and it's going to potentially change forever uh, how we elect our governments in this province. Rob, uh, is that your take, too, the fix is in on this thing? Yeah, it looks like it. I'm a little bit surprised. You know, I, don't, I think we all agree that in, conceptually John Horgan would prefer to continue under the current electoral system if he could get a majority government and push the pesky Greens aside, but he's gone all in on proportional uh, rep by, as uh, Keith and Bonham pointed out, stacking the deck, um, you know, not going with the 60% threshold plus a you know, certain number of the ridings that you would have under the Act. You'd, you'd make it lower at just 50% plus one. Um, I mean, it's going to be, you know, we're, once we get past the mechanics of this, which is, you know, the mail-in ballot and how it's going to work and what questions are on, we're going to end up talking about the electoral systems that could be on here. And, man, are those complicated. Like, yeah. it's going to be an incredibly divisive, incredibly complicated, um, you know, series of weeks and months we're going to have where we try to understand the different options that are going to be on here. It seems likely that STV, which was the subject of the previous referenda, is going to be on here again. And so we're going to be talking about how that impacts rural British Columbia, uh, pooling the ridings, you know, from 87 down to 20-something, uh, where you're going to have multiple, potentially, um, you know, up to seven uh, different MLAs, and you're going to vote preferentially one to four or five. On your, I mean, it's just going to, like, it's a math that's required to figure out a formula that you can't understand to <laughs> distribute your vote. So we're heading into really complicated waters here. And I don't think a lot of people had a lot of confidence watching the Attorney General, uh, David Eby, claim that he's going to be the neutral arbiter of all of this information from a guy who was very clearly in favor of the system for a government that's pushing it forward. It's a little bit like the HST. When the government tried to be the neutral provider of information on that, nobody believed them. And I think they'll probably be in the same position on proportional rep as well. I wonder if they're going to get bit by the same thing that that bit the HST in in the fact that it was the rollout and the feeling of forcing it down people's throats that kind of sours the public on it and it seems like they might be headed down that path but uh vaughn you noted that uh with this uh with this particular process whatever happens in the referendum let's say it's adopted and we have a do have a voting system change uh that won't happen until 2021 and as you noted there's all sorts of time for some funny business between now and then yeah the interesting thing about that date 2021 is if the government falls before July 1st, 2021. So suppose we approve this system. Well, then, from then, and that would be a referendum in the fall of 2018, implementation doesn't happen until the summer of 2021. If the government falls before that, or contrives an election, or the the friendship with the Greens breaks up, any of those things happen, and the government loses confidence of the House, the election will be held on the old system. So during David Eby's press conference, that was one of the first things I asked him was, I said, did you, did you set this up to sort of bind the Greens to supporting you hand and foot? The Greens really want this new system, right? So they have to support you till July the 1st, 2021 to get it. And I know Keith was watching when I said this, and he said there were a couple of Greens at the back, and they snorted with laughter, but (laughs) they can laugh all they want. It looks to me like the NDP has set this up, Shane, to to keep the Greens in line till the summer of 2021, because more than any party in the province, the Greens want proportional representation because it will entrench their position in the legislature. Yeah, and I think we're all sort of on the same page that this this is the sort of mother load for the Green Party, Keith. Yeah, and Yvonne's right. Sonia Furstenau, the Green Party MLA, was standing uh, against the wall in the press theater when Vaughn asked that question, and she roared with laughter. At the, and then I want to ask her afterwards, are you not basically 
uh, tied to the NDP now in 2021, and she again derisively laughed and said, "Not absolutely not. We're here for good government, and the, and this yeah. referendum is not our priority." But that's that is not the case. Andrew Weaver, the Green Party uh, leader, made it very clear in a now famous scrum in the Rose Garden at the legislature that proportional representation and that referendum was their number one all-achieving goal, that, that that took the place of any other policy in terms of priorities for the Green Party. So they've gone all in on this thing. They are now tied to the NDP until 2021. So anybody thinking there's going to be an election anytime soon, I think is going to be uh, disappointed because uh, the, the way this has been framed now, uh, this uh, EB's uh, bill and the explanation with it that nothing can happen until 2021, means the Greens are, are basically tied to the NDP and have to support them until they can get that new voting system in place. Uh, the other big change that uh, was really interested in, this was pitched uh, to be linked to the municipal elections in 2018, and the logic of the day was that this would drive up voter turnout in an election cycle where voter turnout is usually fairly dismal. Uh, but uh, David Eby saying now that they're going to de-associate with that standalone mail-in ballot simply because, A, the cost, and this is a kick to, to municipal politics right in the teeth, uh, the low voter turnout uh, is a bit scary for him. He wants as high a possible voter turnout. Uh, what do you think of that, Rob? Well, it's, it, I mean, it's interesting. The mail-in referendum on the HST had uh, you know more than 50% voter turnout rate, so it puts it kind of in the realm of... Of a, of a provincial election. So you could look at maybe this, maybe having a similar turn. It depends on if people are interested. But uh, delinking it with the municipal elections, I think some politicians are breathing a sigh of relief because they didn't want a massive voter turnout if people got really excited about electoral reform and that overriding and overshadowing their local issues and, uh, and the things that they want to talk about. There were some logistical challenges. The voters' lists are different municipally and provincially. Different municipalities use different systems electronic or otherwise to try and uh, tabulate their results and the and I mean the costs according to the attorney general were going to be so high they just went with the mail-in uh, ballot which I mean the new democrats in the past I, I think have not been favorable on a mail-in ballot they, at one point in the distant history they thought it was undemocratic to do voting that way but they've discovered now that they're in government along with many other files that uh, sometimes the liberals did things for a reason and the mail-in ballot suddenly looks a lot more palatable I think We'd be looking at costs uh, in the $8 million range. That's what it costs to do the HST uh, mail-in uh, referendum. So somewhere around that, plus or minus inflation, it might be the cost of this thing. Okay, let's take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back on the other side, Site C is going to miss a key deadline, and that means a big, big cost. More with Keith, Rob, and Vaughn on Inside Politics and Radio NL. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. The topic now, Site C, uh, who submitted to the BC Utilities Commission, I believe, yesterday. And I'll read right from the report here. BC Hydro has encountered some geotechnical and construction challenges on the project, and the risk to the river diversion timeline is now materialized. Matter of fact, they're going to miss that. That's a $610 million cost, pushing the total project to $8.9 billion. Vaughn, what's going on here? Well, say goodbye to On Budget. And I'd say on time is pretty much in doubt as well. The river, as you know, Shane, can only be diverted through the diversion tunnels to build a dam at certain times of the year. It's basically a few weeks in September during low water. So if they don't hit the target, which is September 2019, that throws everything off for a year. And that's why it's going to cost $600 bucks more, because they're not going to be able to divert the river in September 2019. 
Um, that hydro insists that there's still enough slack in the seven-year construction schedule that they can still have the dam online, the powerhouse running at the end of 2024, which is the current target. But we're still very early in this, Shane. Uh, the hydro president yesterday also warned that there may be risks with other contracts. Uh, we're very early in the contract here that's in trouble, the, the one for all the big engineering works around the site. So I would say, uh, well, the budget is already blown, and I'd be surprised if they can stick to the timeline as well. And, of course, uh, Keith, the hydro submission, though, that even though with the cost overruns and the potential financial challenges here, it's still uh, more fiscally responsible to finish the dam than it is to stop and then have experienced that, that sunk cost. Well, yeah, I mean, if uh, I mean, <clears throat> the government is uh, sort of uh, sunk one way or another, I mean, there's either going to be billions of dollars left on the table by walking away. Uh, we're talking anyway, three to five billion dollars in, in basically money that's wasted, or potentially well more than ten billion dollars uh, at the end of the day, perhaps twelve billion dollars to finish the thing. Uh, it's interesting in in Chris O'Reilly's uh, letter, the the head of Hydro's letter to the BCUC, he is now acknowledging, you know, quite apart from everything else about this project, he's citing some geological problems, and that's the cracks on the on one bank of the river here. Those are problems that were uh, flagged years ago, that the soil up there wasn't as stable as it should be. That is, I mean, there's no getting around that stuff. And that may be the, the, you know, the death warrant for Site C. If they can't fix these geological concerns, uh, then this thing's not going to proceed. And I have mm. to wonder whether Chris O'Reilly's letter to the Utilities Commission, which is in marked contrast to anything Hydro has ever sent to Utilities Commission regarding this project in terms of its negativity, isn't laying the basis of an exit strategy for Hydro's point of view for walking away from this or for allowing the government to walk away from this project. They've got new political masters now. This is not the BC Liberal Party in charge of BC Hydro. It's the NDP. The NDP has signaled for years that they were opposed to the, the, the Site C dam, even though they've taken the position just referring to the utility Commission, but there was always an asterisk there, refer it and hope they kill it. And I think uh, O'Reilly's letter reflects the new recognition at Hydro that this project is not beloved by the government that runs them. Uh, Rob, you talked to Energy Minister Michelle Mongol. What was her take on this? Well, she's punting it all back on BC Hydro, saying, you know, it's up to them to explain this, and this is why we needed uh, the BCUC in there to take a look at it and ask some tough questions, because there's clearly some problems uh, on this project. I mean, in the meantime, the NDP strategy appears to be to just push this all back onto hydro, and it becomes a question of credibility for hydro. As Keith pointed out, you know, these cracks have existed for a long time. The organizations argued it's not a big deal. They've argued that the bankruptcy of one of the partners in the construction contract is not a big deal. They've uh, made submissions to the BCUC um, that they're now basically having to go back and revise on massive issues. They've argued to us you know, up, down, left, right, and center, that the Boone family uh, had to be moved by a certain date or else the whole project was off by another year. That didn't materialize. I mean, there's, you can make a very long list of things that Hydro has either got wrong or, or, you know, politically spun on this project that is now coming back to bite them. And I think Keith's right. There may be some recognition that they're going to have to develop a way out of this because the NDP are going to be looking for reasons uh, to bail on it. And there are many, many reasons piling up every day uh, from Hydro on how they got this thing wrong. 
And Vaughn, some were trying to say that this was uh, part of the road diversion delay, perhaps uh, trying to lay it in the NDP government's lap. But uh, as you told me <laughs> via email, that's a load of crap. Yeah, that is just not the reason for this problem. It is true that the New Democrats came in and said, look, we're not going to kick these people out of their homes until we decide that this thing is going ahead for sure. It's a road relocation. And it is true as well that the contract for the road relocation, the project goes ahead, they may have to revisit that contract, put some more money into it, because there are these geotechnical problems with the routing of the road as well. But the report is quite clear, this report from Hydro, that the reason for this overrun and the reason for this delay is related to what Keith said. It is the tension cracks that opened up in the banks of the river. The first one delayed construction for 10 weeks while they worked around it. And the second one, they still haven't sorted out all the problems with it. So that's the reason the project is over budget and behind schedule. It doesn't mean that's the last of the troubles with this project, but the reason right now we're in trouble is stuff that started under the Liberals. It's got nothing to do with the NDP. Yeah, I'll note that uh, in their submission they say uh, they continue to face risks in other areas, uh, including the uh, second largest procurement that's a generating station in Spillway, Keith. Yeah, no, this is, uh, this is just the beginning of some fiscal challenges for Hydro. We're really at the beginning of this project uh, in terms of construction schedule, and already they've eaten almost entirely into the contingency budget. They're flagging financial concerns, cost overruns on a number of sort of subcontracts through the project. Again, I'm wondering whether or not Hydro is now emphasizing the negatives much more than they ever have in the past rather than the positives. And as a signal to the as an acknowledgement that the government that is in charge of hydro is against this project. And I, uh, I again, I just uh, think they're laying the groundwork here for an exit strategy for, uh, for hydro and the government to get out of this thing. All right, last word to you, uh, Rob. We're aware of the expedited BCUC timeline. Has this put so much pressure, so much added pressure in an already very short period of time to get their heads wrapped around this? Yeah, we're all wondering how the BCUC is going to get that all of that information plus the public consultation all wrapped into a report by November 1st, basically. But uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, Hydro is offering up answers to some tough questions the BCUC had. They came back and said we need more information on specific parts of the project, and now that information is coming out. I think, you know, it, we know it's going to be a cabinet decision at the end of the day. So when we see things like this, uh, that's whether it's reflected exactly in the BCUC's report, which it probably will be, what it really is is a signal to the Horgan cabinet that they have a bunch of outs on this project if they want politically. They can point to the liberal mismanagement. They can point to Hydro's persistent underestimating of contracts. Uh, they can point to the uncertainty that it's going to cause. And, and even if the numbers add up to possibly leaving billions of dollars on the table, they can say this was so poorly managed from the beginning that uh, that money's gone. So it, there are political outs in all of these arguments that may or may not be in the actual dollars and figures in the BCUC report that the Horgan regime can use if they want to, to get out of sight C. All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break here on Inside Politics and Radio Now to get the uh, news to the bottom of the hour. On the other side, uh, we'll pick right up where we left off with Rob, Vaughn, and Keith. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. 
Thank you for listening. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. We're going to talk money laundering in a second, guys, but uh, just during the break there, uh, Peter Fassbender, who's now presumably a supporter of Todd Stone, uh, sent out an email confirming a 9.30 announcement in Surrey where he will uh, launch his leadership bid, and then Mr. Stone's off to Victoria, and then an evening rally here in TRU as he hits the races in candidate number eight in that race. Keith? Yeah, uh, Stone's very organized. He's got, uh, I mean, it's interesting that Peter Fassbender, uh, certainly a prominent member of the VC Liberals, uh, has his backing. Uh, I, I would really, handicapping this race, I mean, people have been talking about Diane Watts and stuff, but my understanding is she bombed at the uh, uh, closed-door leadership forum last Friday uh, and did not do well there at all. I think in terms of organization and just uh, from what I've seen, I think Todd Stone and Andrew Wilkinson right now are the front runners in this race, even though Stone's, Stone's not in until actually... Tuesday, but it's interesting. He's going to begin his campaign in Diane Watts's backyard in Surrey, uh, which I think is a shot across the bow for her. Yeah, uh, Vaughn, what do you th- what do you make of Mr. Stone's tactics so far? He's been sort of unofficially running until now. Well, look, the Liberals lost the election because they they lost nine seats to the NDP in and around Metro Vancouver. I mean, the Liberals actually picked up seats in the North and Interior, as you know. So. Uh, the the winning back of government has got to be focused on that region around the city of Vancouver where more than half the seats in the legislature are now. Fassbender's interesting. Uh, I think some liberals would say that Peter Fassbender was at the center of one of the issues that cost the liberals the election, which is the decision to go to ride-sharing, which backfired on them in some ridings. Then again, Todd Stone's got some explaining to do as well, because he's the guy who went to Surrey in 2013 and promised Mm -hmm. to revisit the tolling policy, which was, he said, unfair to Surrey, and which he never did revisit until the New Democrats got rid of the tolls. So both of them have some explaining to do in the region, but uh, certainly that's where the battleground is for forming the next government. Yeah, and the tolling thing really bit them in the behind. Uh, Rob, what do you think of the liberal, sh- uh, liberal, liberal leadership race so far? Uh, I find Michael Lee an interesting candidate. Yeah, although we don't know a lot about Michael Lee. He's, he's got a very, very low profile. I mean, I've seen him once in the legislature actually speak out loud, so it's, he's a very interesting candidate. But to pick up on Vaughn's point, I think everyone's bringing a little bit of baggage into this. Todd Stone is a you know young, likable, articulate guy who made an absolute mess of the transit file in Metro Vancouver, just a dumpster fire of a mess for a series of years on the referendum, uh, which was a gong show, uh, Uber, tolling, the Massey Bridge. I mean, he, he's got a lot of work to do to figure out, um, to get around that. I mean, he burned bridges with mayors down there. Uh, and it may not all be his fault. I'm sure he's going to argue some of it was the premier's fault at the time and her elbows-up approach to municipal governments, but that's a problem for him. And, uh, you know, Mike DeYoung, another liberal leadership candidate, his problem is he he was uh, the holder of the purse strings on the budget that looked miserly for many years, and Andrew Wilkinson was kind of, he's got this air of elitism to him that he's trying to, to get over. Everyone's got some baggage to get over, and uh, it'll be interesting to see Andrew Wilkinson, uh, you know, so far has addressed that head-on in trying to tell people he's a, a member of rural BC and he's got experience and he's down-to-earth. Todd Stone better hope to do the same thing, because he can't just wander into Surrey and lecture people <laughs> about solving the problems that he made, uh, and almost single-handedly, when he was a minister down there. 
Yeah, interesting point. Uh, speaking of baggage, uh, the Liberal government has some on the casino front. Uh, Sam Cooper, uh, who's been writing some unbelievably explosive stories, kind of diving into that uh, twisted web of money laundering to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, money flowing to the drug trade, allegedly, uh, to Iran, where maybe it's uh, possibly financing uh, terrorists, etc., uh, etc. Et it is pretty, pretty damning stuff. Um Keith, this seems to me off the top a pretty complicated web to unweave. It is. Uh, it's, uh, we're, we're talking about uh, gobs of money here, and the anecdotes that are coming out, Sam Cooper's work has been outstanding. Uh, also, we have an employee from River Rock Casino, which seems to be ground zero for this activity, uh, phoned uh, CKNW uh, and disguised his voice, but talked about how people would routinely come in with literally bags of hundreds of thousands of dollars in $20 bills, and it would be okayed right up the line. The pit boss would look to the supervisor who would call up to the, to the manager, who would call up to, the, to you know, the person above that in the casino, and every time they got the okay to say, fine, we'll take your money and we'll convert it into, into casino chips. So it's, it seems like it's happening right in front of uh, people, and it's, uh, it's carte blanche for, for a number of years. The problem the, the government has, and this is where I think, um, I'll believe it when I see it, is for all the, the condemnation of what's going on in casinos, governments are addicted to gambling revenue. And it's an enormous amount of money, a billion dollars a year. And for the NDP uh, government, now facing a significant revenue strain in the coming years as MSP premiums start to disappear uh, and other forms of revenue potentially decline, that uh, they are, I think, going to be very hesitant to turn their backs on the lucrative gaming file. So Peter German, the uh, ex-former RCMP deputy commissioner, is charged by the... He's coming up with some, some explanations and some policies to stop this practice. But uh, at the end of the day, I wonder whether the government will take any strong action because it could mean a, a significant decline in the money coming into the Treasury. Well, there's a significant amount of public anger as well over all this activity. I was caught by David Eby saying this week that the confidence in the gaming system hangs in the balance. Rob, can they, can they do anything less than do some kind of radical changes? Yeah, I mean, critic David Eby, if he was in opposition, would be lighting his hair on fire on this, and now he's got to he's got to try and find a solution out for it. Uh, um, I mean, it's a very complicated story, and and uh, Sam Cooper's done a, a good job, kind of weaving uh, the different threads to go through here, involving duffel bags of cash and money coming from China, and uh, you know, organized crime and links to terrorism, and then there's also a sub. You know, a sub-issue that always comes into this, which is, is the money coming in for the purposes of investment in the housing market or yeah. to, to, to fuel this idea of, of wealthy foreign buyers using dirty money driving up housing prices in Metro Vancouver, which infuriates people. So there's a subtext to that, too. But uh, it's going to be a very complicated system for the government to, to fix. I think they can pin a lot of the blame, all, all the blame, on the Liberals uh, for underfunding the enforcement and regulatory side of this, and they can put some more money into that and prop that up a bit. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's uh, as Keith points out, you're not going to dramatically overhaul the uh, the gambling system because you need that money and when the other crown corps like ICBC and Hydro are are in the are in the glue on uh, on their finances uh, you got to keep the money flowing from gambling to fund all the government's promises. Well, what options do they have, Vaughn? I mean, what can they do here? They got to well, do they have to do something. Some some of it's complicated, but it strikes me that one thing is very simple. 
by definition, a duffel bag full of $20 bills is suspicious. <laughs> and if you're trying to deposit a duffel bag full of $20 bills at a casino, the casino should insist on ID, make a record of it, see if you're willing to disclose who you are, and turn that information over to the authorities. Or the rule should simply be that there's a limit on how much cash a casino can accept from one client in one day. Uh, I mean, I have trouble believing that anyone wouldn't think it was suspicious that some guy's got a duffel bag full of $20 bills. That's kind of, by definition, suspicious. So um, some of this stuff could be cracked down on. I mean, the banks won't take that much cash without an explanation and some documentation. You certainly can't take that much cash out of the country without an explanation. So I don't see why the casinos couldn't be enlisted in exactly the same kind of exercise. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a it's a very tangled, twisted web. But man, oh man, does uh, does that thing just stink to high heaven? So I'm be interested to see what the NDP government does. Uh, I know David Eby said that Peter German is to contact him even before his report is done if he finds anything criminal in nature. So uh, we'll have to see what Mr. German does on that. Why don't we take a quick break and then we'll back clean up on the other side with Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Rob Shaw here on Inside Politics. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director, Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Uh, a lot of uh, items happened this week as well that maybe didn't get uh, a lot of limelight drowned out with some of the casino stuff, uh, the lobbying stuff uh, we'll talk about in a sec. Uh, but one of those uh, big changes that I thought was really interesting was moving the provincial election date or proposed removing of the provincial election date uh, from the spring to the fall, October specifically. Uh, Rob, what's, what's behind all that? Well, it's long been an argument that if you move the election to the fall, you can not only debate but pass the February budget, that pre-election budget, which doesn't pass currently, and everyone kind of views it with a, uh, you know, that shifty sort of, this is some type of fudget budget that uh, you cook all the numbers for right before an election. And also you can get public accounts uh, during the summer, which is how the government did on the previous year's budget, and whether they were on or off their estimates. So it, it gives... Even former liberal finance ministers agree it gives a sense of better sense of fiscal certainty for voters as they go to the ballots uh, in October than they do when if they go in May when they don't even know how the last uh, budget did. So that, that's the argument uh, from it. Uh, the counterpoint will be it's uh, you know not as pleasant to go campaigning uh, in the dark uh, in October, knocking on doors or getting to the polling station in the snow in some parts of the province. But uh, uh, that looks like it's going to pass, and uh, that'll be a, a fairly significant shift. It adds a few months to the NDP's uh, term in office as well, uh, although I'm not sure if anyone cares about that uh, or not. <laughs> I, I mean, why October, though, Keith? I, I'm a little confused as to why that specific date. I mean, why not uh, early September, for example? Well, it's uh, <coughs> we've had October elections before. Um, I've co- Vaughn and I have covered them, actually. 86 and 91 were both October elections, and the weather was fine. Uh, what I, from a purely selfish point of view, self-interested point of view, what I object to is the fact it's going to be on a Saturday. Mm. <laughs> I'm in television and our <laughs> media. Uh, we have skeleton crews on Saturday, which means everybody has to get called in and everybody's on overtime. So it's a huge cost to the media. That's my selfish pitch, uh, that uh, we're going to be spending a lot of money that we don't normally spend covering election nights. But... Uh, uh, it's a little later than I thought it would be, the third Saturday in October. I, again, I've, I've asked DB, I haven't received any explanation why, why not late September, why does it have to be uh, late October. 
Uh, I suppose you know people are getting back to work. Um, I don't think you can expect an election campaign to begin until after Labor Day, and Labor Day can sometimes run into almost uh, early or mid mid September. So 28 days after that is when the vote would be. So I suppose that's the reason for the for the timing here. Although it's a little later than I than I anticipated. I mean, I, I thought it was. We all knew it was going to the, the vote was going to shift to the fall, anyways, and for good reason, as Rob points out, to provide some more certainty over the budget numbers. Um, and it's a good reason to do that. But it's a little later than I thought it would be. My selfish take would be: you get overtime. <laughs> there's a there's a, another little wrinkle in it too. They, you know, the federal government has fall elections now as well. It has October elections. Uh, Trudeau was elected in October of 2015. So there's an interesting little uh, thing in the text that if if it happens that the federal election is set for a date in October that would clash with the provincial election, the three provincial leaders or the leaders of the recognized parties in the legislature would get together and agree on a different day. Uh, I mean, the Americans, as you know, Shane, have all their elections on the same day. They yeah. elect a governor and a president and a senator and a congress, congressional leader and state leaders and dog catchers and judges. Uh, but here, um, the idea is if, we, if we're running into a federal election, uh, we'll switch the date of the provincial election, I guess what, to avoid confusion in the names of the political parties, something <laughs> like that. Uh, lobbying reform, a lobbyist registry, uh, which will encompass uh, senior civil servants and cabinet ministers, but not MLAs, Rob? Uh, there's not a lot in this bill, actually, when you really dig into it. Uh, there's a report from the lobbyist registrar from 2013 that outlines in detail what should happen uh, in the province to fix the gaps. The NDP did one of the five recommendations, so basically the two-year uh, ban on lobbying. If you're a former official, they didn't expand it to MLAs. You can drive a truck through the loopholes that still exist in that law, and as you might expect, when asked about that, the NDP says, oh, don't worry, uh, we're going to consult on that issue for the next year, and then we'll figure all that out, too. So a, a bit of a missed opportunity to actually fix the lobbying issue and instead just a, a kind of Band-Aid over one of the, the many problems on that file. <laughs> Keith, that your take, too? There's lots of cracks there? Oh, yeah. There, as Rob says, this is a very thin bill, uh, nowhere near um, you know revolutionary as the government would have us believe. In fact, uh, one of the interesting, because the MLAs are not covered by this, the fact that the BC Liberals have been in power for 16 years and the NDP is not means that NDP MLAs can, ex-NDP MLAs can lobby to their heart's content. It's really a bill that's aimed only, that covers really only uh, uh, ex-Liberals who were in government. So... It's uh, it's a sort of an anti-liberal lobbying bill, but it's not an anti-NDP lobbying bill. <laughs> Vaughn? Yeah, I mentioned uh, in the column this week that Sue Hamill, who was uh, a key figure in the NDP politically uh, all through the last two decades and a major organizer, retired as an MLA in the spring, and she has now gone into the consulting business. And, I mean, I... I, I, this is not intended as an advertisement for Sue Hamill's lobbying firm, but frankly, if I wanted to find out what was going on in this government and reach people in it, I think I'd be more likely to hire Sue as a consultant mm-hmm. than a former Liberal cabinet minister. I mean, who's likely to have the minister's home number in her Rolodex, if nothing else? So it it is a, a, a strange decision, a weird decision, maybe a wrong-headed one, to exclude former MLAs from the ban on lobbying, because that's who's most likely to be doing the lobbying with the NDP in power. 
Uh, last go around, uh, Fair Wages Commission launched to find a roadmap to $15 an hour minimum wage uh, and then address the gap between that and the mystical living wage, Rob. Yeah, well, this is, uh, remember, the NDP wanted $15 minimum wage by 2021. That's what they campaigned on. The Greens said no way, so the NDP have backed off that timeline. And this commission's supposed to plot how many years it'll take to get to the $15 minimum wage. You can make an argument that it's stacked a little bit towards, um, you know, the left. The chair is an academic uh, who has some left leanings, helped found the, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Uh, and then you have a representative from the labor unions and uh, one from the business community. But, um, you know, they're going to produce a report and get public consultation. I, I don't really understand what they're going to do for the the following year and a half, uh, almost two years, to study the living wage and the gap between that and the minimum wage. That's very obtusely worded, uh, and then the Democrats have offered no explanation on that. But nonetheless, they're they're off chugging away on this thing. It's uh, uh, we'll, It'll be one of the more interesting reports we get back in uh, the next few months. Funded at uh, $490,000 over a two-year span, Keith. Yeah, and, it, you know, this this uh, illusion of uh, trying to get up to a living wage, uh, I'm not sure how they're going to address that issue. I don't think that's going anywhere. I mean, the living wage in Metro is a lot different than the living wage in Kamloops mm. uh, or in Victoria. So uh, I think that's just uh, a bit of rhetoric. I think it's uh, basically going to be centered at the end of the day on how to incrementally raise that minimum wage to potentially $15 an hour, but I don't think we'll be at $15 an hour by 2021. Uh, it's interesting that Ken Peacock from the BC Business Council is on this panel. And as Rob says, it is tilted to the left uh, with Cohen and a mem- Marjorie Cohen and another member of a union is um, thirds of the panel. But it'll be interesting to see what input Peacock has, because he's going to be looking out for the interests of small business, and uh, I think that's going to be a bit of a check on the uh, sort of the enthusiasm from the other two to increase the minimum wage uh, in leaps and bounds rather than sort of baby steps. Yeah, and uh, it's not just minimum wage and living wage. You're also going to tackle uh, agriculture workers, uh, servers, and all sorts of other wage groups, which will have some business impacts, uh, Vaughn. Yeah, it's a worthy exercise, but we've already seen evidence, some evidence from from uh, Ontario and from Washington State that the $15 an hour minimum wage target does have some impact on employment levels. Uh, it's not decisive, it's controversial, but, uh, you know, as the, as the economy goes on and if the economy falters for other reasons like commodity prices or international markets, New Democrats may not be in such a rush to get us uh, to a $15 hour, an hour minimum wage. All right, gentlemen, uh, that wraps up the show for today. As always, thank you so much for your insight and taking the time. I appreciate it, and happy Thanksgiving, uh, Rob, Keith, and Vaughn. Goodbye, fellow turkey. (laughs) Uh, That's Vaughn Palmer, that's uh, Keith Baldry, and Rob Shaw sharing their views and insight into a number of political topics. Uh, Always a pleasure to have them on, and uh, we'll see them and you again next Friday on Inside Politics here on Radio NL. The Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL, 610 AM in Kamloops and streaming online at RadioNL.com.